Lucia, when will your book be available on audiobook? I get asked this every day. It's coming. In the meantime, I thought I could drip it to you here, narrated by me, one chapter at a time, starting with the preface. So, here it is. Praised by Robert Cialdini, featured on NPR, and shot to number one new release status on Amazon within three days of release. Oh, and fun fact, I'm one of a very small handful of women authors on the topic. I hope you enjoy my narration of my splashy, sexy, smart, and stylish book, For the Forces of Good, The Superpower of Everyday Negotiation. Chapter 3. Little Old Ladies. Negotiation Planning, Power, and Leverage. For the 10 years I taught negotiation at UC College of the Law, San Francisco, I assigned my students the task of submitting a planning memo before each simulated negotiation exercise. I will level with you. They considered it tedious, busy work, to which I would say, and still do, you're welcome. Entering into a negotiation without a preparation or a plan is like walking into a casino with an open wallet. Even when I could discern from the contents of my students' memos that they approached it as a perfunctory check-the-box exercise, I didn't particularly care. They were still developing an important habit. Generally, I recommended that they use the planning guide that G. Richard Schell offers in Appendix B of his book, Bargaining for Advantage, which was also an assigned text and an excellent primer on negotiation, which includes some great anecdotes. This chapter will discuss some aspects of that guide, supplemented by other sources and my own notes from experience over the years. I've organized it into 10 dance moves, but just reading these steps without doing more isn't enough. It's no different from sitting on the sofa while watching the workout video. You need to actually perform the moves to reap the results. Hunker down and flesh out each step in writing, even for just 20 minutes. That's how you'll build the muscle memory required for planning to evolve from the gawky middle school dance to the dynamic hip-hop feat of artful athleticism. Step 1. Consider the context, players, and problem statement or issue identification. Consider the context of this negotiation. Is it high stakes, a subjective notion that only you can define? See Chapter 18. Richard Schell organizes negotiation into four basic categories. Relationship, transactional, balanced concerns, a hybrid of the first two categories, and tacit coordination, examples of which would be drivers at a four-way stop sign determining who goes first, or not eating the last cookie so you don't get in trouble with your spouse. So, is preserving the relationship important? Is the context purely transactional? Is it a blend of transactional and relationship? Which conflict mode would be most effective for the context? More on modes in chapter 12. This first step should also include an effort to define the problems, issues at stake, and create an agenda for the negotiation. 
It's easy to lose track of issues once you're in the thick of bargaining. Think about comparing your problem statement with the other party in advance and setting an agenda of the issues all parties wish to cover. See final chapter for an example. This can save time at the outset of bargaining, manage expectations, and minimize frustrations from cropping up right out of the gate. At least you'll be on the same page to start. Find out who will be participating in the negotiation and perform some internet sleuthing. Where are they from? What is their background and education? What makes them tick? Do you both like dogs? What other commonalities or potential obstacles can you discover? This step will help build rapport, as discussed in Chapter 2. Also think about who you need with you to A. Strategize and B. Attend the negotiation. You don't need to go it alone. Everyday Super Tip Recognize when you need help and ask for it. Generally speaking, people want to be helpful. Even superheroes need help. Think Avengers. Step 2. Define interests. People often come to the bargaining table expressing positions. What the celebrated negotiation scholars and authors Roger Fisher and William Urey have preached for years is the importance of moving past the stated positions to the underlying interests. That is, piercing the what to get to the why something is important to them. Consider different types of interests. Concrete, such as financial. Psychological, such as a feeling of safety. And procedural, such as timing and consider whether they may be shared or conflicting interests with the other side. Actually make a chart like this, and we'll pretend it's for a used car purchase. My interests. Reliable transportation. Fits my budget. Cool factor. Fuel efficient. Their interests. Known or guesses. Quick sale. Get the highest price they can. Goes to a good home offload gas guzzler and commit to all electric vehicles. Step three, set specific goals and know your reservation point. Too many people approach a negotiation without any goals at all or a goal of doing the best I can. That's not a goal. Let's consider the example of Girl Scout cookies. Each spring, all around the United States, the Girl Scouts ply Americans with their famous cookie sales. When I participated in Girl Scouts of America in the early 1980s, I actually went door to door in my neighborhood with my sales sheet and my pitch. When the cookies arrived for me to distribute, I loaded them up in my red radio flyer wagon, I'm not making this up, and pulled the wagon around the neighborhood for miles, delivering the cookies. My goal was to sell 100 boxes, and I was ecstatic when my own mom purchased 10. That's not how it works anymore. Girl Scouts, with their parents at their side, set up tables outside the commuter train stations and grocery stores. Parents email friends asking them to buy cookies for their scout. Some troops set up a form email for the individual scouts to send under their own name and allow for cookie orders directly through the troop website. What is the purpose of the Girl Scouts of America cookie campaign, other than to addict consumers to Thin Mitts and Samoas. According to the Girl Scouts of America website, it's fivefold to learn about one, goal setting, two, decision making, three, money management, 
Four, people skills. See rapport in chapter two. And five, business ethics. From 2009 to 2019, I conducted my own little experiment each cookie selling season. In addition to subjecting my three nieces to this line of questioning during the time they participated in Girl Scouts, I would approach a table outside a grocery store, smile brightly and say, hi, how exciting, it's Girl Scout cookie season, to which I'd be met with, would you like to buy some cookies? I'd say, quite possibly, I'd like to chat with you a little first. Do you mind if I ask a few questions? See chapter 10. While I generally received consent, their smile would already devolve into a frozen grimace. I would keep smiling and reassure them it was perfectly okay to not know the answers to my questions, how I had been a part of Girl Scouts when I was young, and how supportive I was of their endeavor. Then I'd ask if they knew what the purpose of the cookie-selling enterprise was. How many of the five objectives could they recite? Their troop goal, their individual goal, how their troop intended to use the proceeds, and then, this last question is tricky. I don't expect you to know the answer, but I'm just so curious. Do you happen to know how much of the cookie profits your troop keeps compared to Girl Scouts of America corporate? Mind you, I asked the questions one at a time, not in rapid succession. I'm annoying and pedantic, but not a monster. In 10 years of this experiment, often to the chagrin of one or both of my sons who had accompanied me to the store, a couple of dominant behaviors prevailed. The parents would almost invariably start to answer for the scout. I'd flash my smile in their direction and request as cheerfully as I could, I'd love to hear directly from your scout if that's okay which was typically met with pursed lips and a furrowed bro by said parent. And the scouts could answer an average of only one of the questions. For the most part, they had no idea about goals and had not wondered about purpose. This is an example of blindly entering into an enterprise for tradition, for the authoritative organization or local tribe, simply because people love cookies and that's reason enough, and not thinking about a plan information gathering, or goal setting. Non-existent, vague, and unprincipled goals lead to lackluster results. Richard Schell teaches us that negotiators who develop high, specific, justifiable goals accomplish approximately 40% better outcomes than negotiators with amorphous goals. Let's break this down. High means a starting point that you can communicate with a straight face, though not one that you realistically expect to achieve. Leave yourself room to make concessions and show the other side that you have come their direction. People like to feel that the outcome of a negotiation was hard won. So counteroffers do serve an important purpose in the negotiation dance. Specific means crunching numbers for a precise calculation as well as any other attributes needed to make your goal durable and practical. Who what, when, where, how. Justifiable means that when you are asked how you arrived at that demand, you can refer to objective standards and metrics to back it up. This works both ways. When the other side presents their offer, you should always ask, how did you arrive at that?
Now imagine the confidence and motivation cookie-selling Girl Scouts might enjoy equipped with information, specific goals, and a sense of purpose. Imagine how it could help them build rapport, focus on specific goals, and affect both the experience, more fulfilling, and outcome, sell even more cookies. You also need to know what your reservation point, aka bottom line, is. That is, the point at which you walk away from the bargaining table because no deal is better than a bad deal. This includes what Fisher and Yuri call an analysis of BATNA, understanding what your, and the other side's, best alternative to a negotiated agreement is. That is, if you can't get a deal, what's your and their best backup plan? You should also consider your and their watna, worst alternative, and malatna, most likely alternative. Using the example of searching for a specific hard-to-find model used car, which you've been looking for for six months before finding one for sale that is exactly what you want but is out of your price range. Batna. Find a similar make and model that is more readily available. Find some non-monetary value I can offer the seller for this car, such as my master mechanic services in the future. Watna. Remain inflexible about the make model and keep taking the bus, which is consistently late, makes me late for work, and causes stress for my family and me. Malatna. Take on some side work or ask my brother for a loan to raise extra money to bridge the difference between the top of my budget and the lowest I think the seller will go on price. Step four. Determine applicable standards and norms. Objective or authoritative standards and norms are those that neither party can manipulate. Why should you look to these? Makes the negotiation principled. Helps you defend a position. Helps you avoid appearing weak or arbitrary. Builds trust because you are referencing external standards. Some common examples include replacement cost, competitor's price, community practice, scientific merit, depreciated book value, precedent, and what a judge or jury would decide. Be specific about standards or objective criteria that will favor you, standards you believe they will use, and standards or status quo you think need to be challenged, and think about how to work with the other side's standards or convince them that yours are more relevant or appropriate. Mine. Blue book value. Ongoing cost of maintenance now that warranty is expired. Gasoline cars are losing value due to climate change and shift to electric, which should factor into price. Theirs, classic car value. Reputation and past record of this make and model for reliability and low maintenance. Gasoline cars will become scarcer and difficult to find, which should factor into price. My counter arguments. Having a sentimental attachment to a car doesn't mean it's classic, but show empathy conduct my own research on online auto discussion groups about maintenance cost of this make and model. Appeal to environmental responsibility. Step five, evaluate leverage. Assess who you think has more leverage going into the negotiation. Let's dive a little deeper on this point. Power and leverage are not synonymous, but are often articulated interchangeably. Who has more power in the negotiation? 
who has leverage? How can that leverage be influenced? Well, what's the difference? Power is the strength, ability, or resources to do something or act in a particular way, a subtext, a way that can also control other people or outcomes. Leverage is having something that someone else wants or needs, and thus the ability to influence power, subtext, to affect other people or outcomes. Hmm, still a little obtuse. Let's look at a couple of concrete examples. Consider the massive real estate developer who has successfully purchased all but one tiny home in the area designated for a new medical research campus. That home is owned by an 80-year-old woman in good health, so she's presumably not going anywhere, whose grandfather built the house, was raised there, and raised her own family there. She has communicated to the developer that there is no price they can put on that house. It's simply not for sale. She's just a little old lady, and they are the big, powerful developer. But she's got the leverage. Many of us are parents. Kids are great natural negotiators. They are relentless about what they want, highly motivated to get it, unconcerned about you saying no, persistent, and imaginative. Between a parent and a three-year-old child, the parent is the more powerful party. We are bigger and stronger and have more developed brain, more experience, and better command of our fine and gross motor skills to accomplish tasks. But if you want your child to eat their peas, the child has the leverage. Sure, you can use threats and bribes. I'm not going to pretend that figurative carrots and sticks aren't useful implements in the parental toolbox. But ultimately, you cannot force the child to eat the peas. Only they can do so. They've got you in the crosshairs, and how you respond is really a test of your own temperament, behavior, and strategy. Not only might your ego be on the line, I can't let them win this one, I need to maintain who's in charge, but shaping future behaviors might be on your mind. If I surrender on the peas, what am I signaling? I lose credibility, and they'll learn that they don't have to listen to me in the future. Leverage is nuanced and can be a real thorn in the side of the more powerful party at the negotiating table when they don't have it. Now for the punchline. Leverage can shift. The party who starts with it doesn't necessarily hold on to it. Perhaps there is a way for the real estate developer to affect conditions to change the situation e.g. start the demolition on the properties surrounding our little old lady, creating conditions so intolerable that she finally caves. Perhaps you can use a third party as an influencer. That favorite uncle whom your child constantly imitates happens to be visiting for dinner and delightfully devours their peas, exclaiming how good and healthy and strong peas make them feel, causing your child to gobble down their peas so they can be just like Uncle Mark. Or maybe ask yourself what makes it so important to you that your child eat the peas. Can you let it go? Can you substitute something else for the peas that would satisfy the interest at stake and you can both get on with life? This brings us to a secret of negotiating that's hiding in plain sight. After the planning is complete and you are actively negotiating, remain nimble. Often new information is presented through the course of the negotiation. Pay attention. Have you learned something that impacts your BATNA or that enables you to influence the other side's BATNA? You may need to take a break 
to develop additional options or conduct more research. You may need to adjust your expectations or your bottom line accordingly. Assimilating, after validating it, that new information and assessing how it affects your options and possibly shifts leverage is one of the unsung superpowers of great negotiators especially these days when it seems people's opinions are expressed as incontrovertible fact and they are just the opposite of open-minded or flexible about new or different information. More on this topic later. The point is, leverage is dynamic and can be a shell game in negotiations, so keep your eye on that moving ball. For an entertaining depiction of shifting leverage, watch the 2003 film Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Everyday super tip. Avoid the rookie mistake of underestimating anyone, especially little old ladies. They've lived a long life, they've seen things, they've had experiences you haven't, and they know things. Respect to little old ladies everywhere. Step six, consider invisible influencers, third parties. Do you need to consider the impact of a deal on any third parties? Can a third party be used as an audience, excuse, justification, e.g. shareholders, parent organization of a school, union members, the diversity and inclusion committee of your company, or even general notions of reputation in the community? Don't make the mistake of omitting necessary decision-makers from the bargaining table, however. One of the basic requirements for each party in a mediation with me is that any necessary decision-makers must be present. If you've been negotiating over the course of hours, days, or weeks without the participation of a final decision-maker, the precious but delicate house of cards you've built can tumble. If they haven't been one of the architects, you run a high risk that they just won't get it, and it's too easy for them to reject a lot of hard work. They haven't had any skin in the game or taken the time to be a part of the whole story arc. Step 7. Find a big paperclip. Imagine possible creative ideas and proposals. Although true brainstorming is time-consuming and best accomplished together with the other parties, it's worthwhile to start this in the planning stage. How could you build on shared interests, bridge conflicting interests, create options, be creative at this stage without culling your ideas too much? The culling comes later when you gauge if the other side is open to the idea, and then you start to test the practicality of creative options. While creativity is a wonderful attribute, it must be combined with durability. We dedicated an entire class session at the law schools just to brainstorming. I'd stand in front of the class with a large butterfly-shaped paperclip. I'd say, this class is forming a corporation and this is our invention. What are all its possible uses? Then I told them we couldn't stop until I ran out of room on the chalkboard. Yes, I used a chalkboard and an overhead projector. Aren't you now totally impressed that I'm keeping up with modern times and hosting a podcast? This process usually started slowly, but I would literally stand in silence waiting for them to yell out ideas. An earring, drain cleaner, Q-tip, retainer, nose picker, car hood ornament, pet tag, cherry pitter. And at some point, when the ideas were running low, I'd prompt them with, what if we had 100 of them, 100,000 of them, joined together? What if we melted it down? 
and we'd be off and running again with much bigger ideas for power turbines, fences, and machinery of social protest and change. Then we would develop goals and interests for our corporation, e.g. legally compliant, environmentally responsible, cost-efficient, readily available, or even open source, compliant with safety standards, etc., and start to cross off the ideas that didn't match. Everyday super tip. In the planning stage of negotiation, feel free to let your hair down and get a little crazy because you never know when a seemingly wild idea, while not practical itself, could lead to a really brilliant and practical one. Step eight, plan for the use of information. Do not skip over this step. Richard Schell suggests a give-get-guard chart, which means considering what information you are willing to give or want to make certain they hear, what information you need to try to get from the other side, and what information you need to guard from the other side discovering. Let's break this down. Give. What information will you give them and how, and with what timing? What's the purpose of giving information in a negotiation? I mean... Don't you just want to get information from the other side? Well, giving helps the relationship. It provides a starting point, and there may be reasons that you want to be the person to establish that starting point. It can trigger reciprocity. It signals leverage, and it helps you offer and justify concessions later on. Get. What do you need to learn from the other side? The purpose of get is, again, assessing leverage, discovering true interests so that you might satisfy them, discovering obstacles, assessing credibility, testing assumptions, and evaluating the standards they are using. It also helps you reevaluate if necessary, and it's often necessary. Guard. This is the information you don't want them to have and why. You may need to guard it in the face of persistent questioning. How can you do that? You can provide a partial answer. Provide a limited, qualified answer, e.g., I can't make such an offer at this time. Answer a different question. Misconstrue the question. Ignore the question. Answer a question with your own question. Bluff. Be transparent. I can't share that with you. Negotiate information for information, or my personal favorite, silence. You've heard how nature abhors a vacuum. Apply this law of physics to the other party. Seriously, if you can get comfortable with 20 seconds of silence in the face of questioning, start mentally counting backwards from 20, and by the time you hit 12, Watch how they will fill that silence themselves with more talking. Give, get, guard chart. Give. My appreciation of this make and model of the car. Information on my research of similar cars and sales prices to set desirable purchase range. I am a master mechanic and know what I'm talking about. Get. Why are they selling it? idea of irrational valuation of the car, such as sentimental value or idea that it is definitely a classic. Any prior accidents or body repair. Guard. The fact that this may be considered a classic. That I already have this make and model and am purchasing to scavenge for the passenger door to replace mine, which is a part impossible to find. 
Once I replace my door, I will likely sell off the remainder of this car for parts. Step nine, calculate a concession plan. Related to step three, map out the concessions you are willing to make during the course of bargaining. Think through all the possible ways you can build concessions into the negotiation to show the other side you are giving up something. Though I stand by my advice in chapter two to make it easy for the other side to engage, I've also advised how people like to feel that the outcome of the negotiation was hard won. On the surface, those two conditions may seem at odds with each other, but they demonstrate how people are multitudes, and a negotiator who understands human complexity is well served. Concessions can be monetary or otherwise. They can be tangible or intangible. Smart negotiators even plan for false concessions. That is, the appearance of giving up something that does not in reality matter much to you. When a Hollywood agent was asked about his negotiation strategy, he advised, always leave a bagel on the table. The point is to increase the other side's satisfaction with the deal. Step 10. Reflect personally. Think about ideas for increasing your effectiveness in managing your own emotions, reactions, and personal goals in this particular negotiation. Take a few moments to consider what could trigger you emotionally and strategies for regulating yourself if that happens. More on this in Chapter 12. Do you need help? If so, get it. If you are negotiating in a team or with your attorney, is there a code word or a secret baseball hand signals that you craft in advance that lets the other person know it's time for a break? Note that this requires true presence of mind in the negotiation. When I was a fledgling attorney, I would hold a small, smooth stone in my hand. It was cool to the touch and helped me remain calm and grounded. Did I still get overwhelmed or feel out of my depth? Yes but the key was that I didn't yield to false pressure tactics and knew enough to adjourn and reconvene after I'd had time to think or consult a more senior colleague for advice. Everyday super tip. If the other side is applying pressure for an immediate response, this is a flag. How likely is it that the pressure is real versus manufactured by them? In fact, you probably just gained valuable information that they are in a rush. Absent a deadline by an authoritative and objective source, don't be hurried. If it's a power play on their part, making them wait can shift the power. Ditto for feeling confused. Chances are it's because something is confusing, and they may be trying to make it so. Not that you are a dummy. There's a scene in the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, starring Robert Redford and Paul Newman, that I used in my law class. Butch and Sundance are the two leaders of the hole-in-the-wall gang. Butch is all ideas, Sundance is all action and skill. Well, they robbed one too many trains, and a highly specialized posse starts tracking them wherever they go. In this scene, the posse is closing in on them, and they've literally run out of land. They have arrived at a high cliff over a raging river, and the posse is gaining on them with each passing second. They are cornered and arguing over what to do. I would watch the scene with my law students, and I would pause it just before the characters make their decision. I would ask the students to analyze it as a negotiation. What would the negotiating agreement entail? Surrendering to the posse. It's probably the best way to remain alive and possibly negotiate some, I don't know, plea bargain? 
Did they do that in the Wild West? Absent that, what's their batna? To jump from the cliff down to the river and hope to survive the fall. What's their watna? Death. What's their malatna? Well, death again, either from the fall or by drowning or at the hands of the posse. Oh, and one of them finally admits he can't swim. And then I'd hit play to reveal what happens next. Thanks for listening. Negotiation isn't just for business. It's everybody's business every day. And it can be your everyday superpower. Stick with me here. And you can find my best-selling book on Amazon, For the Forces of Good, The Superpower of Everyday Negotiation.